Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. A nice candy. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Cooking Show. I am your host, Bob, and this week we are talking about a wonderful little plant, actually it's a wonderful big plant, called sorghum. The recipe that we're going to be doing this week is sorghum pancakes with sorghum syrup, but we're going to talk a lot about the plant that is sorghum, growing it, different cultivars, varieties, uses, whatever, um, as well as like the processing of, of the product, the seed heads, uh, the sap for syrup and the stalks, whatever. We're using the whole buffalo in these pancakes, uh, the whole sorghum in the pancakes. All right, check out the show notes. We'll have the step-by-step -step photos of preparing the raw ingredients and making the actual pancakes and everything like that. Let's see, Whoa. for this one, because I don't expect, even if even if you do get a, a big motivation out of this episode, you're like, I'm gonna grow sorghum. Well, you're not gonna grow it now, okay? It is, uh, it's September, it's the end of September. Uh, we are well past the growing season for this particular uh, grass. So, uh, you know, if you want to make sorghum pancakes and taste sorghum syrup, I'll have links in there to where you can just buy sorghum flour, sorghum syrup, whatever, online, probably Amazon. I haven't, I haven't looked. I mean, it's not difficult to find, but you may, you may not find it readily at your local grocery store. So we'll put links to where you can obtain those things on the internet. But aside from that, I, I did use my, my grain mill attachment for the stand mixer. I'm not going to put another. I mean, man, what, what, I guess I'll put a link in there for it. What, what harm is it? I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to jumble it up with the same link, you know, five different times, but who cares? This might be the first episode you've ever listened to. It'd be like, what are you talking about? What's this grain mill thing? I'll put a link to that in there. But yeah, let's talk about sorghum because it's not, it's one of those things where it's, it, it's simultaneously extremely common and prolific around the world. It's grown in massive quantities but the average person doesn't have a lot of firsthand experience using it because uh, I think, well, today, you know, in the West, it's predominantly used as an animal feed in other, you know, in, in more ancient cultures and in the Middle East and Eastern Africa, North Africa, it was more of a staple crop, but I don't think that that has translated to the modern uh, cuisine landscape the way, for example, corn has, maize, you know, I, I would... The, the similarities between sorghum and corn are ridiculous to the point where if you didn't know that you planted sorghum for most of the growing season, you'd be like, wow, that corn is growing really well. It looks exactly like corn. It is a, it is a grass, essentially. It's remarkable that they are separated by, by an ocean and thousands of years of development and all that kind of stuff. It's not, you know, one doesn't follow from the other. But anyway, sorghum is a very old grain. It was domesticated like 5,000 years ago in Eastern Africa, I believe in Sudan. And then it sort of spread through the Middle East, uh, North Africa, kind of like all of that Eastern, Southern um, edge of the Mediterranean. And it was a, it was a staple crop for many early civilizations. At first, I would like to say that like, oh, with 5,000 years of history and development and improvement, you have like this really impressive uh, crop now. But I mean, corn, maize was domesticated 
10,000 years ago from the Tiasinte plant. And uh, so it has like double the lifespan and an and improvement and development cycle that sorghum does. And you can see that in the final product. I mean, if you look at heirloom cultivars of corn, you'll see you know, every color of the rainbow, every cob size, kernel density, kernel pattern, height you know, of the stock. You can have corn that grows 10 feet tall. You can have corn that grows you know, four feet tall. You can have tiny little three-inch strawberry popcorn ears, or you could have these massive, you know, flint corn, I don't know, Hopi Blue, Painted Mountain, Bloody Butcher, like all these different types of products that can come from it. You have sweet corn, you have dent corn, you know, you can make corn flour, you can eat fresh corn, make corn syrup, all these different things. Wonderful. Well, we're not talking about corn, we're talking about sorghum. Sorghum, over 5,000 years of improvement in a fairly harsh environment, you know, a very dry, hot, arid environment has produced a really robust plant that grows extremely easily without a lot of um, tending. I mean, basically don't overwater it, make sure it has a lot of sun, um, make sure you're growing it in the summer when it's hot, all that kind of stuff, and you will have success from that. Uh, my sorghum plant, that, or my sorghum patch this year, was planted amongst my corn and it was just basically a 20 foot by 20 foot square essentially and it was planted very densely much more densely than corn is corn needs a little bit more room to spread its roots and sort of leaf out and and grow and stuff like that um, obviously you see you see a cornfield it looks like it's just solid corn all the way through but you can walk amongst those stalks easily the planting density guidelines for sorghum are similar. So if like leave 12 to 24 inches between individual plants. So you could plant a sorghum field that you could walk through easily. But it seems like I think because it was improved in such an arid environment, the roots tend to grow down as opposed to out. Like it's more of a taproot type of uh, plant. So by planting them more densely together, you don't get that root crowding that you would from from corn or other crops. So I just, I broadcast seeded these and they grew fantastically. You can get different cultivars that'll have different heights. I wanted to go big. I wanted something impressive. So I planted a, a variety of sorghum called Mennonite, which uh, let's see, what, uh, what would be the, the, the qualities of Mennonite sorghum? Number one, the stock height is going to be like 10 to 12 feet. Ridiculous. You stand in front of this grove of sorghum and you're dwarfed by just a green wall behind you. It is a white sorghum, like the seed itself in the seed head is white. Of course, that white is like encapsulated by the husks and the fiber of the seed head, which are like a rusty brown when it's mature. And it's also a dual purpose uh, sorghum variety in that It'll produce seeds that can be used for grain and flour and whatever. Also, it has a high sugar content in the in the sap, so it is good for making sorghum syrup. Um, so those, like if it's a sorghum that is bred specifically for syrup production, it's usually called sweet sorghum. Um, then you have your, your seed stock sorghum, then you have your hybrids, like your dual purpose. And that is what the Mennonite sorghum is that I grew there. As far as nutritional profile, sorghum is relatively high in protein for a grain. It's like 13% protein content. So you're, I mean, you're not going to use it for a keto diet, but um, there certainly is a significant amount of protein by volume or by weight of the finished seed. And then 
I, I don't know what the what the sugar concentration is of the sap, but it is very high. It is much higher than, for example, maple sap, right? Your sugar maple sap is going to, I mean, if you go back to, I believe it was maybe March of this year, I have a maple syrup ep episode where we made maple syrup from our trees. Uh, you're looking at with sugar maples, three to 5% concentration of sugar, you know, using roughly 40 gallons of sap reduced and boiled down to make one gallon of maple syrup with sorghum sap. The conversion rate is eight gallons of sap to one gallon of syrup. So there's like five times the concentration of sugar in the sap of the sorghum plant as there is to the maple uh, maple sap. So I guess, I mean, you could say if, if sugar maple is three to 5%, then sorghum could be uh, 15 to 25%. That seems ridiculous, but you know, I did make sorghum syrup and it was certainly faster and easier than making maple syrup. Uh, but we'll talk about some of the, the, the trade-offs with that because there are some, it's not, look, if sorghum syrup was quote unquote, as good as maple syrup, just because of the higher yield, the, the faster turnaround, I mean, plant it 120, 120 days from planting and you have a crop as opposed to, you know, planting a, a maple tree and then waiting years for it to mature. Um, you know, economically, Sorghum syrup would be the predominant quote unquote breakfast syrup if it didn't have certain hmm, drawbacks to it that maybe maple syrup doesn't have. All right. So let's talk about the plant itself. Uh, I got two packets of Mennonite seeds that I planted um, and they, they sprung up very quickly. I, it was like a week. I mean, just like with a lot of grasses, whether it's corn or sorghum or oats or wheat, uh, you're going to get little seedlings popping up very quickly. And then they will outcompete the weeds pretty aggressively. And they do so just by growing taller, faster than anything else. Like uh, you might have some other things growing up in there, but very shortly, in, in very short order, those sorghum stalks are going to be towering over whatever weeds that are growing amongst them uh, on the ground. And at that point, they have all the access to sunlight that they need, and they're just going to take off and run. Uh, time to maturity. Uh, usually, I mean, there are different cultivars, obviously that you can, you can probably get something down in the 85 to 90 days to maturity all the way up to 120 to 140 days maturity. I believe my Mennonite was like 110 to 120. And I didn't keep track of this at all. I basically just went visually like, oh, the seed heads are coming out. Oh, the seed heads are starting to turn brown or, or red more or less. And then eventually the stocks, you know, you get a little bit of wind, they might bend over a little bit. It's like, all right, it's time to, time to harvest this because they are not going to remain standing for much longer. Okay. And, and maybe that bendiness has to do with the planting density. You know, if you spread them out 12 to 24 inches between the plants, who knows, maybe they'll stand up and remain standing through tornadoes and thunderstorms and everything else. One thing you'll, if you, if you read about sorghum online, you will inevitably run across a, a warning, a word of warning. Uh, don't eat raw sorghum. Don't feed raw sorghum uh, stalks and leaves to your livestock because it does have a trace amount of cyanide in the plant. And if you eat a bunch of that, you can concentrate the cyanide and poison yourself. It's similar to like cherry trees. If you have a cherry tree that falls or a limb breaks off in a cow pasture, you got to get that cherry 
limb out of there before the cows start grazing on the leaves and chewing on the bark and all that kind of stuff because they can make themselves sick from the cyanide content in that particular tree. That said, yeah, I, to I totally tasted the sorghum stock when it was growing and everything. Look, if you're chewing on an inch of sorghum stock is not going to hurt you. It's not going to make you sick. It's not going to kill you, certainly. If it would, I mean, think about the implications of that. Then my sorghum patch would have been enough to kill everybody in this county if it, if it actually posed a threat to like to sampling it to see what the sugar content was and, and chewing on a little piece of the pith. Uh, it's not that big of a deal. It's, but basically, just keep that in mind. Don't feed the raw greens to your goats, your pigs, your horses, your cows, stuff like that. You want to either ferment it in the silage or uh, cook it off to extract the, the syrup. And then the cooking process does uh, neutralize the cyanide content. Okay. So when it came time to harvest the sorghum, what I did is I used a sickle and I just lopped it off close to the ground, maybe two or three inches from, from the ground. And I laid them down so that they were all laying the same direction. So all the seed heads were one end and then the cut end was at the other end. Then I went through with a pair of garden shears and just snipped off the seed heads to put those aside, reserve those separately. A lot of people, you, you know, if you, when you cut those seed heads off, it certainly would behoove you to dry them um, before you process them. You could hang them from the rafters in a barn or an outbuilding or something like that. You could lay them out on a platform that's covered so they can just dry naturally before you get the seeds off of the seed head. What I did as I went through it, I, I rubbed all the seeds out of the seed heads. I accumulated them in a bucket and then in shifts, I put them through our dehydrator on silicone mats. I put them on a, a baking sheets in the oven on the proofing setting, which is like 110 degrees with a little bit of air circulation. Basically, I wanted to speed up that drying process because I didn't want to have to wait a couple of weeks before I could make these pancakes. I wanted to make them now, 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 now. And that worked fine. You know, I'm going to continue drying this out and then put them into sealed buckets with desiccant packs or anti-oxygen packs or something like that to save them for um, the future for, you know, milling into flour and doing whatever. You can also pop the kernels. Um, I think so with popcorn, you dry the corn out to roughly 3% hydration, which I'm sure there's a way to measure this, but mainly it's like, okay, let your corn dry, you know, push it off of the, off the cobs with your fingers, uh, and then let it dry further. And then eventually you have these hard little kernels and then pop it in some hot oil. And it generally works. We're going to try the same thing with the sorghum. I have no idea how I would measure the moisture content. I'm just going to dry them until they're dry enough. <laughs> and then we'll give it a shot. Who knows? Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Uh, the, the actual, the actual seed itself is very small. It's a tiny little pearl. Uh, it'd be interesting to see just how big of a piece of popcorn it produces. I think it'd be very small um, flavor-wise. Uh, who knows? We will see that is for another day. But anyway, so we cut those seeds, seed heads off, accumulated all of those, and then started drying them out. When it comes to making sorghum syrup, there's a couple different methodologies you can employ. One, you know, the canonical, uh, what would you call it, a commercial method is to use a cane press or a cane roller. Uh, it gets that name because it's uh, used for pressing the sap out of sugar cane to make sugar. But obviously you can, you can use sorghum stalks in place of sugar cane. What you do is strip off the leaves from the stalk. So you have these like, they look like bamboo reeds more or less. 
and then you put it through these rollers that crush the stocks and squeeze the sap out of them. Just like the, the mechanical advantage that you get from these rollers means that you can apply literally dozens of tons of force <laughs> between these metal rollers to squeeze the sap out of the sorghum syrup. That said, I don't know anybody who has a cane roller. Uh, you can buy a, a manual cane roller, cane press, something like that uh, on the internet. And it's like an old timey metal crank type of thing. I feel like that would be hit or miss in terms of efficacy. Like you get it. It's like, oh, neat. I have this old machine, this antique machine. And then you use it and you're like, oh, now I have to, I have to fix it. I have to adjust it. Probably have to mill my own parts for it or whatever. So it, it would be fun if he had one. It would be fun to use it the way it was supposed to, but I don't think it would be particularly efficient. And then you get into the the mechanized machinery of pressing uh, sap out of canes, and uh, then you're talking about thousands of dollars of investment for what is essentially a culinary experiment. So we did not do that either. I didn't buy a, a, an electric cane press to use for that. Instead, there, the other way that you can do this is cut the canes into reasonable pieces, you know, three or four inch logs, more or less, and then add those to a big pot, fill it with water, and then simmer or boil that for a period of time. That extracts a lot of the sugar content in the syrup or the sap from, from the canes, and then you take those piece of cane out of the liqueur and filter the liquid and boil it down and you will produce syrup that way. That method is, I mean, there's no way that that is more efficient or as efficient as using the raw sap itself. When you're pressing the sap out of the, out of the cane, you are getting pure sorghum sap. That's where you get that eight gallons to one gallon ratio for boiling it down into syrup. When you do it with this water bath method, you're going to have a higher dilution. You have to boil off more water to get the resulting syrup, but it worked. It worked fine. And it still produced a higher concentration of sugar in that water than with the, um, the, the maple sap. So yeah, that was cool. Uh, basically one day of boiling down a big pot, uh, gave me, uh, my first batch of syrup. Now I'm going to be boiling this stuff for a couple more days. Cause I've got a whole bunch of it left, but to get enough for this recipe was fine. So you boil that. I run it through flour sack cloth, uh, into a bowl to catch any dissolved salt, not dissolved solids, but suspended solids or debris that's in there from, from the, the raw water that you start with. And, uh, you just do that. If you get a little bit of scum on the top, you can skim that off. There was a lot less of that than I had when making maple syrup. Like maple syrup is pretty dirty when it's, once it starts concentrating and you have to like skim a lot of foam off of the top. There was very little foam on the surface of this syrup that I was producing. And then it, it cooks down, it gets nice and golden brown and thick. And you can, it smells exactly like maple syrup whenever it's boiling. And then, you know, eventually you have uh, lowered the water content and increased the sugar concentration to the point where you have syrup and, uh, and then it's done. And then you let it cool. You can can it, you can do whatever. Let's talk about the flavor of the sorghum syrup. It is, it's syrup. It's sweet. It's super sweet. It's sugary. And it also has like this mm, sour, but not sour like lemons mm, or acid, sour like um, like fermented plant. And that sounds bad, but it's not. It's just, it's it's a hint. It's an accent of flavor that's like, Ooh, what, what is this? This obviously came from a grassy plant. I can taste that in the syrup. 
yeah, so it has it has a little off flavor that is you know left over from the the origin. It is part of the plant itself. It has that grassy silage sort of accent to it, and that certainly can be off putting if you don't like it. But it's also it's unique and interesting, and I enjoy it. Uh, if you use the syrup as a sweetening agent for things like tea or coffee or baked goods, you're going to get the sweetness and all the other flavors inherent in that thing that you're making are definitely going to uh, overcrowd, overpower the uh, the the grassy sort of uh, – it's more of an aroma. It's like you know how sometimes you put something in your mouth and you don't taste it so much as you smell it through the back of your throat like as you as air goes up you know, into your sinuses and whatever. It's more of an aroma that you get from it, but it's, it's not bad. It's just, I don't want you to think that this is just pure sugar with no polarizing qualities to it. Okay. So, uh, once you do that, once you boil your, your canes and then take them out at that point, they are safe for animal feed and they're also softened up. They're not as fibrous and dense and woody. That's not like it's, it's more like corn leaves and silage than it is like uh, bamboo cane. So I've given it to my pigs. I've given it to the goats. They, they don't go crazy for it. And the ducks like it. The chickens like it. Uh, they don't go crazy for the for the for eating it, but they do eat it and they'll browse on it and, and kind of graze whatever you give them. So don't give them like a ton of it up front. Kind of hold that back. You can let it dry. Um, you can let it dry out and then you know add that mix that into their feed. You can compost it. You can use it for just increasing your carbon content of, of your garden or whatever. You can till it into the garden. It'll add a lot of nice uh, carbon, nitrogen, and all that kind of stuff. Whatever. So let's get to the seed heads. Uh, the seeds are, they, they create these like pom-poms at the top of the stock with thousands of seeds. And depending on the cultivar that you grow, you can grow ones that have these massive like basketball sized seed heads, or you can grow ones that barely have any seed heads at all. And they're mostly for sugar production. Uh, the Mennonite was kind of intermediate, intermediary. You can look at the, the photo album and see like one of the seed heads that I laid decoratively beside the plate of sorghum pancakes there. But similar to the way that I threshed and winnowed the um, the wheat and oats, using my hands, I'd roll the seed head between my fingers, between my palms over a bucket, the seeds would fall off and I would keep the woody stems and, and whatever other fibers um, that didn't contain seeds and discard those, ended up with a, a, a huge quantity of seed. Basically, this 20 by 20 foot patch of sorghum produced an order of magnitude more um, usable grain than either the oats or the wheat that I grew. So that was cool. You know, that's like, it's prodigious. It's prolific. It's pro all kinds of words, <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah. So we, we shuck all the seeds off of the seed heads and then we went through the whole dehydrating process. And then I milled, you know, roughly one and a half cups of sorghum flour. Now let's talk about the milling process because it's a very, it's a very seedy seed, you know? Uh, once you pass wheat or oats through the grain mill, you kind of, you lose the visual indicators of what the thing is. It basically becomes, it is a coarse flour, you know? When you put the sorghum through, and I, I didn't do like a full cleaning, you know, I didn't do like a full day of winnowing to get all of the little rusty red flecks of seed husk out of the flour, out of the seed. So, you know, it was a, it was a very hardy flour. It was very rustic flour. I did sift it. I 
passed it through the through the seed uh, sorry, sorry through the grain mill three times sifting it in between and trying to accumulate um, non-flower debris that's in there and discarding it and even so you get a very it's a very seedy flour it would be great as an addition to like a rustic bread not as the predominant carbohydrate in there but just like you know you make a loaf of bread and you add seeds and nuts and whatever to it add some sorghum flour and it'll be very seedy and delicious sorghum is uh doesn't have gluten so it's not going to create a, a spongy stretchy kind of dough that's why it's great for pancakes it's because it it'll create a flatbread type of product but it won't uh really puff up or rise or get stretchy or anything like that and i didn't want to add regular wheat flour to it to to bolster the gluten content i kind of wanted to see what like what would a pancake look like if you made it three thousand years ago in egypt or you know somewhere in the middle east mesopotamia or whatever and that's sort of um what we were going for there so three millings through on the finest thing produced a a very hearty flour and then using that we made pancakes here is our pancake recipe and if you buy listen if you buy sorghum flour like commercially prepared like bob's red mill or something like that it's going to be much finer and you're going to get something much closer to like a bisquick style pancake yeah it doesn't always have to be as this rustic but here's our our pancake recipe one and a half cups of sorghum flour two tablespoons of granulated sugar uh, two teaspoons of baking powder half teaspoon of salt and then you have the wet components which are four tablespoons of uh, melted butter a cup of buttermilk a teaspoon of vanilla extract two large eggs and a half cup of water and very simple sift not sift kind of just mix up your dry ingredients mix up your wet ingredients add the dry to the wet mix that up it's going to make a thin batter and then you just ladle that into a hot cast iron pan with some melted butter and it will produce a pancake now with regards to the pancake that it's making uh, number one that pancake is going to take longer to cook than a traditional wheat pancake um, the dry components don't seem to absorb the liquid as readily or as thoroughly as like a wheat flour would so it stays kind of it stays wet when you when you ladle it into the pan so you want to you want to cook these on medium to medium high you don't want the temperature to go too high because by the time you've dried out the pancake enough to flip it or to have it be finished it will start to toast the actual um, the grain component on the bottom and you don't want to get like super black i mean they'll, they'll be darker than a normal pancake because of the longer cooking time but you don't want to like scorch it right it took me several pancakes i had to get several units in before i realized exactly what the what the procedure was here but then you make a normal pancake be very gentle when you're flipping them because again without the gluten without the sponginess without the elasticity in the in the batter itself they want to fall apart easier they're much more crumbly so you let them go until they're they really have some structural integrity and then very gently flip them with your spatula and let them cook off that way then because i was making a whole bunch of them i would then transfer them to a wire rack in like 175 degree oven to keep them nice and warm and uh they were fine they were great they taste like brown butter popcorn i mean it's, it's wonderful it's very hearty seedy and delicious and then you know top that with a little bit of butter and the sorghum syrup 
Now for the sorghum syrup for this particular recipe that I made, I did add some aromatics to it. A dried orange slice, a cardamom pod, a couple grains of black pepper, clove, allspice berries, nutmeg, uh, a vanilla bean, and a cinnamon stick. There might have been a couple other things in there. Check the uh, picture. I have the, the list of what I threw in there. That made it smell really nice and homey. It's kind of like mulling spices. It smelled like Christmas at grandma's kind of, um, but that was really nice. Uh, the rest of the syrup that I'm making is just going to be straight down the middle sorghum syrup and that we'll use as a sweetening agent for other things. But that's it. Listen, if you, if you, if you garden, if you grow corn, so if you have the space available, if you have a 20 by 20 patch, 30 by 30, something like that, and you want to try something different that kind of connects you to really the roots of civilization. I mean, this was, this was a grain that was grown when human beings invented cities, you know, this supported some great empires of you know, thousands of years ago. It's kind of cool to just grow that in your backyard and see it and be like, wow, this really is productive. Like, look at, look at how much mass, you know, you plant this tiny little seed and then three months later you have this towering stock with thousands of seeds on the, on the top. It's like, wow, this is, this is quite a multiplier. There's so much leverage, agricultural leverage. You know, it's, it's really impressive. It's cool. It looks neat. You can make a sorghum maze or something like that. Um, but until then, you know, grab a bag of sorghum flour, get yourself a jar of sorghum syrup and give it a taste. See what you think. I think it's pretty cool. Um, and now I've got tons of animal food. I, oh, the, the seeds. If you, if you don't like them, if you don't like the, the, the flour, if you don't like the pancakes, if you don't want to eat them yourself, guess what? I, I'd say the primary reason that sorghum is grown you know, domestically, I mean, I haven't looked this up or anything, uh, bird seed, chicken feed, scratch grains, they all have sorghum in it. Birds love sorghum. In fact, I was worried for a little bit that I wasn't going to get any actual seeds there because I would go out and I would just see a flock of these tiny little, I don't know, sparrows, starlings, whatever, just flying out of my, <laughs> my sorghum patch. And I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to have anything left by the time it is time to harvest those. But the birds eventually moved on somewhere else, and I got tons and tons of seeds. But birds love them, so you could grow your own chicken feed. You could grow your own duck feed. You can feed the wild turkeys, the birds in the park, whatever. Point is, super easy to grow, and it's kind of neat, you know, having that, that connection back to uh, a mysterious time far, far removed from the present day, yada, 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 yada. <laughs> so it's sorghum, sorghum pancake, yeah, sorghum pancakes, sorghum syrup. It was really good. It was fun. It was, uh, you know, a big process. I highly recommend it. Talk to you guys next week.